Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hello, everybody, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Thank you ever so much for joining us on this edition of the Once Bitten podcast. Joining me today is Seed Signer who is talking about his pleb project which uh, is going to aid you to use a hardware wallet as an air gap so stick around and listen to this one because it's very very interesting and it's very very topical as well please don't leverage with your bitcoin just buy your bitcoin and put it on a hardware wallet this is in response to the huge correction we saw in the last few days since actually recording um, this happened about a week after recording a lot of people got shaken out and they're losing their bitcoin they're losing their corn because it wasn't theirs and it wasn't on the hardware wallet so please make sure that you do that and one of the show sponsors as you know is bitbox 02 that's a bitcoin only hardware wallet it's packed full of cool features it's very user friendly and you please just get your coins off exchanges or apps that's enough said on that topic the apps and exchanges you can use to buy bitcoin from of course in the us of a is swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten across europe is relay r-e-l-a-i dot c-h forward slash bitten and in the uk coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten bitcoin only companies they have got your backs so stack safe get it on a hardware wallet listen to this one i hope you enjoy the show thank you everybody that is out there helping spread the word of bitcoin sharing retweeting whatever it is you do thank you okay yeah all good man seed signer welcome to the once bitten podcast great to uh, great to meet you thanks so much brilliant i'm, I'm excited to talk today Right, Lauren is uh, is here to ask the first question, so far away. Uh, yeah, okay, so I got two questions. So, um, why did you reach out to my dad? Uh, that's a good question. Um, forgive me, this is probably the part of the podcast I was the most nervous about because I've listened to a few episodes before and, and uh, kids are pretty good at detecting when adults are fibbing. So, um, I'm going to say that... I'm excited about this project that, that I started uh, a few months ago, and your dad has a lot of listeners, so it was just a great opportunity to tell more people about um, this project and maybe get them interested to um, build their own uh, signing device. Yeah, it looks pretty cool. And um, so my other question is, what is a seed signer? That is just a name that I came up with um, when I was first kind of starting the project. So a seed signer at a super basic level does two things. It helps you generate what's called a private key. Uh, and it helps you do that without anybody else's help. So you can be sure that nobody else um, knows your secret Bitcoin key. And then the other thing it does is it 
helps you sign Bitcoin's transaction so that when you want to send some Bitcoin to someone else, uh, the seed signer uh, will help prove that you have the right private key and that you can spend the coins that you've been saving. Um, does that answer the question? Yes. Very cool. Are you out of questions now? Yes, I am. It looks cool, huh? What do you think yeah. of it? Looking at it. I thought it was like a little video game first, like a little Bitcoin video game, like a little control video game. But um, otherwise, it's, it's better than a video game. <laughs> Some people might think so. Other people might just rather have a video game. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Well, thanks, Lauren. Yep. Okay, bye. Bye. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Have a good one, guys. Yeah, so thank you uh, for reaching out and uh, you know introducing yourself and opening my, my eyes to this project and what it is you're building. So, what um, what what kind of inspired you to to do this? Like, it's uh, it, I'm sure many people are sitting there at the moment listening, trying to figure out a way for themselves to build something in the space it, it did you feel that itch as well and this was you know this is what you just had to go and do right this was um it, it kind of came all from i was looking for a storage solution i guess this would have been about a year and a half ago um it goes further into you know my backstory or whatever but i i was storing some coins and i was storing them using a website um not using a website, but there's a, a website that allows you to take um, a private key and split it up into a few different pieces using a, a cryptographic trick called uh, Shamir Secret Sharing. And the website was called bitaddress.org. And it's been around for at least five or six years. And what you can do with this website is you save a copy of the website and you run it on obviously a, a computer that's not connected to the internet and preferably like a disposable one that you're going to wipe after you've used it. And you can generate private keys using a bit of entropy from, you know, moving the, the mouse cursor around uh, on the, on the computer. And then, so I'm, I'm, I was sharing, storing rather some Bitcoin using this, this trick where they split up the private key into a few pieces. And then I could put it, you know, one in a safe deposit box, one with a trusted friend, one at home, that kind of thing. But I was really wanting to get to, multi-sig like on the protocol native multi-sig and for a while there just weren't solutions out there uh they were just starting to come on there was like caravan from unchained and there was casa has their multi-sig thing but i was actually listening to a podcast it was a stefan lavera podcast and he was interviewing a guy called michael flaxman who has done this uh this research paper um called i think it's the 10x bitcoin security guide and it's just it's just suggestions and tips on where you can get the most bang for your buck in terms of upping your your security in terms of how you store your bitcoin so i i listened to this podcast and one of the tools that he talked about was specter desktop and so i downloaded specter and started looking at, at what was available on their github and i noticed that they had a diy or a do-it-yourself signing device and i have a little bit of a background in hardware so i thought i'd build one and try it and it just required you know, ordering a couple of uh, hardware components from the internet and then doing a little soldering to put them together. And I created this, uh, 
this signing device that's a part of uh, what they've created to work with um, to work with Spectre Desktop. Spectre works with you know a lot of the established Bitcoin hardware wallets, but they also have this do-it-yourself hardware device. So I make this, and they use kind of a newish model for approving transactions in multi-sig. And it is, uh, you could refer to it as air gap signing. So it uses QR codes. And what you do is you type your, your seed phrase that represents your private key into the DIY device. And then you use that to set up a multi-sig wallet with two of three or three or five or, or however you decide to set it up. And then this do-it-yourself signing device essentially just proves to the desktop software that it knows the private keys. So the, the software, after you set up the multi-sig, you, you create a transaction and it uses what's called a partially signed Bitcoin transaction format. And it communicates that PSBT to your signing device via a QR code that you scan with this, you know, it looks like a big calculator kind of thing. You scan it and then you can view the details. Um, you have your private key in this device. So after you review the transaction details, you can approve it. And then the approval is communicated back to the uh, laptop or desktop version of the software also by QR codes. And the first time that I signed a transaction this way, um, it was like I've said before, it was just like magical. It was like the first time I've ever done a Bitcoin transaction or the first time I used Lightning. It was just, it was super intuitive. And it was like they say, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And it was just like, it just made sense and it was so cool. Um, so that that that's part of the story. Um, but Spectre solved a, a huge problem for me and it got me interested in this air-gapped uh, QR signing kind of uh, security model. So from there, um, I started interacting a little bit with Stepan and Moritz uh, from Spectre. I've tinkered with 3D printing in the past and, and designing some simple enclosures for kind of Bitcoin stuff. And they didn't really have an enclosure for this Spectre DIY that they designed. So I just knocked something simple out and sent uh, one to Moritz and actually sent another one to Michael Flaxman, who uh, was that researcher who wrote the 10X guide and uh, just started interacting with them. And Michael Flaxman had, had mentioned that he had an idea for using a Raspberry Pi Zero, which is just a, a smaller version of the Raspberry Pi that most people are familiar with to calculate the 24th word of a seed phrase. So if you've generated your own seed phrase and you have those first 23 words, uh, the 24th word actually operates as a checksum. So you would use this tiny offline computer to be able to calculate the checksum phrase. And that's what initially got me interested with the Raspberry Pi. Um, and kind of th that's how seed signer started was just figuring out if I could design something that would calculate the checksum word, if a user had generated their own seed phrase with their own entropy and um, to do that in a, a secure offline fashion. Um, that's probably a long meandering answer to your question, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you are deep down the rabbit hole. Holy Moses. <laughs> there's there's a lot to unpack there. And for, for any noobs that are listening or uh, relatively newer people to the space, they might be hearing a few words that they're not fully understanding. So perhaps we can just um, pick those apart and help those totally. that are listening that are kind of like scratching their heads. Uh, Air-gapped, how would you explain that to the general Bitcoin 
uh, user that might have a hardware wallet, one of the uh, the more well-known ones, uh, or to someone that's you know perhaps shopping around and, and trying to buy their first one. What 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 do you mean by that term? Right, air-gapped is uh, it refers to there being no physical or even really a network connection between you know two computer devices. My background professionally is in digital forensics, so. Um, when I worked with mobile phones in a forensic kind of capacity, uh, one of the most important things when you're going to con conduct analysis on a mobile phone is to isolate it not only from the larger mobile network, but to isolate it from any Wi-Fi networks or Bluetooth devices. Um, and we actually, where I worked, we had a special room called a Faraday room that is just like a little closet with metal shielding in the walls. And you would take a mobile phone that you're working on into this room and as soon as you close this big metal door that looks like a bank safe, uh, you, there was no Wi-Fi signal anymore, no, you know, any of the, the mobile carrier networks can't get through that. Your device just goes totally isolated. Um, and that is partially why this, this mode of signing appealed to me. But air gaps, so when you typically use a Trezor or a Ledger um, or some of the other kind of more traditional hardware wallets, you usually have it plugged directly into your laptop or you have a cable that's connecting it or such. And coming from a forensic background, uh, a device that is not USB connected is more secure than a device that is USB connected. And because your private keys on that wallet, I think it's just preferable. I feel a little more comfortable when it's not connected to my computer because I never know, you know, what is going over that uh, USB line in terms of, you know, that's how you update in the firmware and such. And if there was some sort of malware that could somehow be able to access the private key that's stored in your hardware wallet, having an air-gapped uh, wallet or a signing device that doesn't have that connection makes it a little bit more secure. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah, totally. And um, you might want to mention um, that there are a few... Uh, I'll throw it out there that cold card, for example, um, have an air gapped uh, wallet on the market. Uh, wh which other ones are you um, happy to shill? Uh, absolutely. Cold card has an air gapped model. Now that's air gapped using uh, a micro SD card, which is a little bit different security model, but it's still, you know, a step up from having that continuous kind of unmonitored USB connection. Um, there aren't a lot of wallets that use, I know there's one called Cobo Vault that uses QR signing. So it's air gapped uh, that way. And I, I saw a tweet about it, one that I can't think of the name of the other day, but I think it's really a newer kind of security model for signing transactions, especially multi-sig. And so I think we're gonna start to see more of these manufacturers that have been around for a while coming up with products that take advantage of, of you know, a screen and a camera to sign using this this technique. Yeah, it's pretty exciting actually. Like this this shift now as we roll over the the hardware wallet technology. Um, you know, five years ago, th there were only one or two options, and right. new people coming into the space now. I guess it's a bit more daunting as well. I, I should have empathy towards people that are, you know, perhaps shopping around for one of these things. But you would recommend, yeah, just um, like figuring out which ones are are air gapped. It's 
it I would say it, it totally depends on um, <clears throat> people's, you know, the amount of value they're protecting, what they're comfortable with, because you don't want to start using hardware that you're not, you know, familiar and comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this this interface is going to become more user friendly. I think when when hardware wallets first came onto the scene, um, you know, a lot of people were just storing coins in their Bitcoin Core hot wallet, you know, on their laptop or their desktop. Mm-hmm. There was way back when there was a there was actually an air gap air gapped uh, software suite called Armory that I know Trace Mayer was involved with, and that was like a higher security setup for more protecting higher values. Um, but when hardware wallets started to come onto the scene, uh, I, I think that project kind of fell by the wayside. But it's funny now we're kind of circling back to that whole like air gap physical distance separation kind of model, but. What I was getting at was when when hardware wallets first came out, a lot of people were probably leery of those too and thought like, I'm happy with my, you know, with my uh, encrypted passphrase on my core node and these hardware wallets, like those aren't made by the core developers. So what if somehow I lose my coins with those? But over time, people became more, uh, more comfortable with that model and the hardware wallets, you know, got more Lindy effect and more trust built up. And now it's kind of a default that you keep your coins if you're not going to store them on an exchange and you have more than you want to just store on like a mobile phone it's it's like a default that you want to uh, use a hardware wallet one of the more conventional ones i think over time as people become more security conscious and the value that people are safeguarding um you know the, the value of their coins just grows i think people are going to be interested in in more uh, secure storage models just to give them a little peace of mind. That's that's one of the things that I've personally experienced is that you're more likely to be able to hold over the long term when you're more confident in your security setup. Uh, and when you start to get anxious, thinking maybe your security setup isn't what it should be, then you're more likely to like, honestly, like panic sell. I think we're all like, humans vulnerable to you know those emotions of fear and greed and such so yeah 100 percent. so just to uh to talk about your project um so we don't get anything uh mixed up yeah jaws works as a signing device or is a wallet but what what's the we're, we're in a blurred lines for those people that uh, might be wondering right. exactly what we're talking about that- that's kind of a, a new distinction that's emerging in the wallet space. And what I would call a wallet is a wallet is anything that stores your private key in a persistent way. So uh, a Trezor, you know, that has, I believe they have a secure element of sorts on it and that's where your private key is stored. I would definitely call it a wallet because that's where your private key is. Um, but I would also call, you know, with the model that seed signer uses when you first power it on, there's no private key in it. You enter your 12 seed words or your 24 words and you're able to sign transactions with, with it. But I would call that a piece of paper or preferably some kind of metal plate with your seed words etched into it. I would call that maybe your wallet or some people now call that a private key storage device. The it, It's kind of becoming a, a, a the, the, the uh, lexicon of you know what's key storage versus signing versus a wallet. Some people think of a wallet as more like Spectre Desktop that manages your interface with the Bitcoin network and manages your balances and, and 
coordinates for transactions and such to be a wallet. But if I can make this clearer, the seed signer, I wouldn't call it a wallet. I call it a signing device because it's not designed to remember your private key. When you power it off and it doesn't have any sort of battery that's that it's designed to be incorporated in the case, it <clears throat> runs off of uh, a USB power connection. And when you power it down and disconnect the power, it's not designed to store. Uh, you can store temporarily up to three private keys in it while it's powered on to do signing. When you power it off, it, it's not designed designed to store the private keys. So um, that's why I wouldn't call it a wallet. It's just when it you've entered the private key, you're able to sign transactions with it, if that helps. Right. Okay. So it's kind of like the bridge between, uh, you know, one of these legacy hardware wallets. If we use uh, Trezor Ledger as an example, you would use the signer. Uh, you would input the words into your signer uh, that would be able to interact with the um, with, with making the transaction, but you're saving yourself from ever plugging your Trezor or Ledger into a computer. That's right. That's right. And um, the only way that so the we we probably skipped over a part. Seed Signer is built, <clears throat> excuse me, using a Raspberry Pi Zero, and it's a specific version of a Raspberry Pi Zero called a zero one dot three. And all that 1.3 designation means is that the hardware does not have uh, either Wi-Fi or Bluetooth built into it. Hmm. And the it doesn't come stock with a, an Ethernet connection either. So there's it's not a matter of it. It won't connect to Wi-Fi or Bluetooth. It's a matter of the hardware is not, not there. So it just simply can't do it. It's like don't be evil versus can't be evil. So when you have a, a constructed seed signer, the only way that it can communicate um, with Spectre Desktop, which is uh, our supported software right now, the only way it can communicate with Spectre Desktop is via QR codes and the camera. So it can read in QR codes with the onboard camera and it can communicate back to Spectre via QR codes. So it's a very limited protocol that it can use to communicate with Spectre. And it's it never communicates the private key. All it does is communicate proof that it knows the private key in the, in the form of a partially signed transaction. Man, that's cool. All right, let's 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 back up a bit because you said something pretty interesting, which I think people are going to want to hear a little bit about, depending on how much you can share. Digital forensics. <laughs> what, um, that, <laughs> that, that was your career, your previous career, correct? It was, it was. Okay. Uh, how much of it can you, you know, what was your day to day? What, what, what are you able to uh, share with us? Right. There's, and I've talked about this before, so it's, it's not a huge secret, but I'm a retired police officer. Uh, people can probably tell from my accent that I, I'm from the United States. I don't have Satoshi's level of OPSEC to any degree, uh, but I just don't put my name out there because I was in, in a former life, uh, a law enforcement officer. So I was, I started out, you know, as a young guy in my 20s as a local police officer, you know, and I drove a police car and answered calls for fights in progress and to take reports on car accidents and all that kind of stuff. Um, early in my career, the police chief of the department I worked for knew I had an interest in computers and a little bit of a background in computers. And this was back in, oh, I don't know, like 2006. Um, so m forensics in terms of being a, 
discipline in law enforcement was still very much uh, a young one and emerging. So there was a a local forensic lab that was kind of a, a working group that had officers from several different police agencies there. And he asked me if I had any interest in, in going to work with them. And of course, like, you know, that's like, I, I don't know if CSI was around back then, but the CSI factor was, you know, exciting and stuff. And so not knowing anything about digital forensics, but having a bit of a background in computers, I thought it sounded great. So I went from being, you know, a, a guy in a uniform and a badge basically into an office environment or a lab environment where my job every day was to go into work and sit down with, uh, initially it was mostly desktop computers and laptop computers. But if you think of the time frame, that was also when mobile phones, you know, and, and uh, the iPhone and Android were starting to explode. So initially uh, my forensic work was more, you know, Windows systems and then Apple's and then it evolved into more uh, Android and iOS devices and such. So it's uh, that was my work for, I would say, about 12 or 13 years full time. I was in digital forensics. I uh, was super fortunate to receive a lot of great training from private companies that produce forensic software, as well as, uh, you know, programs through the, the federal government here in the States that teach local law enforcement officers best practices for, for forensics and such. And my job in law enforcement is actually how I first came across Bitcoin. And I can't remember if it was, it was either 2012, late 2012 or early 2013, but I, that was definitely my path into Bitcoin was hearing about it at work. Hmm. I got some questions here that that's <laughs> really interesting stuff. So let's start with the basic one. What, what's, um, what what compelled you to become a police officer? What what was the um, what was the path there and the mindset at the time? That is a good question. Um, early in my life, uh, I guess I've always had this this sense of like service to your community and such. And um, when I was younger, I wanted to become a priest for several years. <laughs> That's that's a bit controversial these days, um, but I've always had this sense of of helping people around me and stuff. And it, it sounds corny, but when I was in college, um, I got a job working in, in private security of all places at a local zoo. And um, and I worked with a lot of retired police officers there. And then when I was in college, I worked for the, the campus uh, Department of Public Safety as just like a student officer locking up buildings and such. And uh, I, I have a bit of a meandering career path. So after, after I graduated from university, I had a degree in English with a minor in philosophy. And I thought I wanted to be a high school English teacher. Ended up that that was just not a career path that was right for me. And so I kind of had several jobs over a year or two, ended up being a flight attendant for uh, an airline called TWA that doesn't exist anymore got laid off after 9-11 and ended up working because I had had some, some previous work experience in security, uh, ended up working at a local university as a, a security guard, but it was, it was an interesting environment because it was very urban and there was a lot of crime. And here I am working as a security guard, unarmed in kind of a rough neighborhood. And I thought like I could just become a police officer and make quite a bit more money and probably work in a nicer neighborhood. <laughs> so um, 
so that yeah that was my path to law enforcement and uh kind of just figured out someplace to get a job and went through the police academy yada 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 it, it's it was uh kind of an interesting career trajectory when you say you know you, you had this kind of urge to help people or always have I, I feel that that is like inherently inbuilt in in human beings uh, I think we all get a, a huge amount of joy when we do get the opportunity to help someone. And it could just be like the most basic thing, like helping somebody in the, the supermarket that can't reach the top shelf, for example. I get that all the time. I've got long arms. But it just gives you this this really uh, kind of warm glow inside. We've We've just slipped so far away from that. And how did you see the, throughout your career, how did you see... Um, like communities change or police work change? Was there anything tangible that you noticed? In terms of um, the, one of the advantages of, of my position was that I would go on a lot of training trips and towards the end of my career, I was actually helping to teach classes in different parts of the country. And um, so I had not just, as a local police officer, you, your circle is kind of limited to, um, to the people that are in your area, but I was fortunate to get to interact with, you know, cops from all different parts of not just the United States, but even in some cases from other countries too. Um, I, I, I think it's, I don't know that I would say the career of law enforcement changed so much, but definitely it is, it has become a different kind of world in the United States to become a police officer. I, I, like I kind of joke my timing to get out of law enforcement was pretty good with, you know, all the stuff going on uh, here in the States with kind of some unfortunate situations where a small group of cops who did some pretty dumb things kind of make it a lot harder for the whole larger community of law enforcement. But I don't want <clears throat> to digress too much into that. Um, back to your original question of how society maybe in law enforcement has changed. Um I, I kind of had this belief that American society specifically is kind of in the later civilizational stages in something that I would call like the decadence phase. And I think all of this ties into uh, money as well, like the burgeoning you know, federal deficit and the amount of debt that people individually are in. And I think money affects parts of our lives so much more than people realize. And it affects parts of our culture and civilization um, but I just think like, I, I, I think some aspects of our society has, have strived away from some core values. Uh, I still think people are fundamentally good. And I think people get a charge, like you said, out of helping others. Um, it just, it may not be as promoted by our culture as much as it maybe used to be. Like we live in an increasingly kind of materialistic and over-sexualized culture. And both of those are a little bit more self-seeking kind of directions. And so I, I, I still think human beings are fundamentally good. And, and uh, I hope we can kind of steer things back to, uh, back to sounder territory with sound money. That's the hope. Man, that's the vision, right? Yeah. That's that's uh, the, right, the, right. that's why we do these things, right? That's why you're building your project. That's why I do this podcast. That's why people are out there doing whatever they can do to help spread the word of, of Bitcoin because we all see that the difference it can make in people's lives. And Right. And it's it's like, you know, they joke like Bitcoin is 
you know, uh, what do they say? Uh, uh, sound money wrapped in a get rich scheme. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's powerful. It's it's crazy. And uh, I mentioned earlier on a different call. I, I saw a, a tweet earlier. Uh, Kyle Bass tweeted out um, pictures from inside a, a shopping mall of people in a I line. Did you see that? I, I did see that tweet. Yeah, unbelievable. That was Louis Vuitton, I think. Yeah, and Gucci. People queuing mm-hmm. for what seemed to be hundreds of meters around around the mall to start spending their their stimulus checks on high end luxury purses. Or I I don't know. It it just that nothing. It just screamed fear to me. That, that right. It, and I can't speak to that, but I have been to an Apple store a couple of times over the last six months. And that's also kind of a, a luxury, good sort of, uh, sort of uh, place. And yeah, the Apple store has been hopping the, uh, the last couple of times I've, I've been there. And maybe that's the same kind of, same kind of outlet for the money that's being pumped into the economy. Yeah, for sure. So I want to ask you about, uh, the the digital forensic work that uh, you were doing, um, sure. and uh, specifically with mobile phones, because we are all on high alert these days. With we've given up too much privacy, especially as Bitcoiners, right? You know, we, we've mm-hmm. definitely got our tin hats on when it comes to we're being followed. You know, try and keep the GPS off, try and keep as many tracking devices off the phone as possible, and you know do this, do that. Some people still don't care and just go around their daily business. As somebody that's worked inside, uh, you know, the department that you were working in, it must be a weird one for you to try and like figure out in your mind because I'm sure you caught some pretty bad dudes because you could track them and you had the ability to, to find them. But at the same time, you must also be thinking to yourself for your own personal use i know exactly what to shut off so no one can find me so like what's the how do you yeah could you just give us kind of any insights or how that um how that rests with you right it was it was especially as mobile phones became more prevalent in society um you know i i'm personally kind of a libertarian i believe people have the right to be secure in their um, in their personal information in their personal papers, if it, as it's more kind of referenced constitutionally, but um, I've been on the flip side of the coin where so most of my work was in crimes against children, and if you kind of think of the time that I came into um, digital forensics and law enforcement work, this was kind of on the heels of um, this was kind of on the heels of peer-to-peer file sharing exploding initially in terms of just music music file sharing in terms of BitTorrent and uh, some of those other um, networks. And what that kind of created was this explosion of the accessibility and production of child pornography worldwide in terms of um, anybody with access to an internet connection and a computer and potentially a phone could produce and distribute child pornography. And there's some really tragic consequences of that um so that was like the my position was largely focused on 
uh, assisting with prosecutions of those kind of people. So I had in my hands many cases, not just phones, but um, some of the people who had produced this kind of material who were more conscious of their operational security, you know, would use you know, encrypted zip files or encrypted disk images, TrueCrypt, BestCrypt, all that kind of stuff. And so I, myself being kind of a personal privacy advocate, also found myself in positions where I'm attempting to investigate, investigate a crime with a high degree of belief that someone has done something horrendous and they've put up some sort of technological barrier from allowing me to uh, find out more information about their crime or effectively prosecute someone for harming a child. So as cell phones became more prolific, uh, encryption and password phrases ended up kind of being more of a default thing. So uh, Android initially, even after they adopted uh, pin codes or security gestures, weren't encrypted by default. And then it became more apparent over time by the manufacturers that uh, people's information security was at risk by not having encryption turned on by default. So at some point several years ago, Android and some of the manufacturers started encrypting at the hardware level by default. So that was, it, it's interesting you bring that up because it's it's frustrating from a law enforcement perspective. But then again, if I put on my, I'm a citizen hat, like I we all have the right to be private in our papers. And there's there's always going to be this kind of cat and mouse security game um, in terms of people that want to access information and people that want to safeguard it. And there's no, there are no clean solutions to it. Um, but I think, I think that law enforcement should have to work harder than just being able to go to Apple or a service provider with a, with a subpoena um, or even a warrant and just being able to unlock people's personal data. I, I'm, I'm a believer in encryption as a force for good in the world in terms of checking some of the abuses by the, especially the federal governments like the United States, as well as other countries and being able to access people's private information um, concerning, you know, how they're moving and information that they're storing and stuff. Does, did that touch on what you were, you were kind of getting at? Yeah, exactly. I, you know, I'm trying to place myself in your shoes and, and thinking to myself, you know, it's my job to, to catch bad guys. And wow, I mean, doesn't get any worse than what you were dealing with, you know, crimes against kids. Um, of course, you would want to be able to access that information and, and go after and, and catch them. But at the same time, like you're saying, you, you want to have privacy for yourself. I mean, I wonder, what, were you still in law enforcement when like the whole Snowden thing started dropping? Yeah, yeah, that was... How did that, that go was, down? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's interesting how the media, even like in America here, the left side of the media was quick to come to the government's defense in terms of Snowden and to paint him as uh, kind of an enemy of the state. And maybe they were just kind of reacting to the posture that politicians were taking. I'm not sure. And I'm honestly not uh, probably as well versed on the Snowden situation and his disclosures as I could be. Um, but it definitely shook things up. I mean, it, it makes people start to question uh, the information 
that the government is storing and how they're surveilling citizens. And it, it's, it, it's a crazy time to be alive. That's for sure. Was that, did, did that play a part in you rethinking about your career or was that a different thing that, you know, finally made you uh, come away from that? Um, so two things. And the, the first is that, um, you know, having been someone who was exposed to Bitcoin in, in early 2013, um, you know, I, I didn't make a ton of money from mining early, early, but I kind of accumulated some coins, you know, early ish by some Bitcoin standards. And so I was in a position coming up to 2013 that it kind of plays into my story to some degree that I had saved some coins up and this is, um, kind of during the fork wars and when Roger Veer was talking about breaking off Bitcoin cash and there was a lot of uncertainty in the Bitcoin market. And I had always kind of told myself that if if this crazy little investment in this thing called Bitcoin ever grew to the point that I was able to pay off the mortgage on our house and start like a debt-free life, um, I always kind of felt like I owed it to myself to at least consider that. So we get to 2017 and I'm feeling like this is when I, what I was talking about before about your comfortableness with your security setup kind of dictates how strong your hands are to some degree. So I'm feeling like I'm storing several hundred thousands of dollars worth of value, basically like printed on some, some computer paper in my underwear drawer. And it, you start to get to the point where you're kind of questioning whether or not this value that you have is even real. And so I, I came to the, the conclusion that if I lost the ability to live a debt-free life, due to some developers arguing over you know, the block size, which is just parameters and software, I probably would never forgive myself. So totally weak hands, sold everything in 2013. Um, 2017. Paid off the, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, 2017, yeah. sold everything way early in the bull market. I did not, <laughs> when I say I sold early, like think like March or April of that year around like $2,000. So I did not like time that well by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so we paid off our house and kind of spent the next year and a half saving up a little money. And it's super blessed. I have three kids that are all school age. And so part of it was the blessing of being able to step away from work and be present with them. I'm, I'm fortunate that my wife has a good job and our finances are such that I could kind of walk away from my career and focus on, you know, being there for the kids and such. So that's one aspect of it. And the other aspect of it is I, I was just becoming um, uh, the, the, the toll of working exclusively on crimes against children started to take its, its toll on me emotionally. And there aren't a lot of uh, programs or such set up to provide, you know, I, I don't want to say like mental health assistance or counseling, but you just don't realize how insidious being exposed to that material you know, five days a week for six hours a day, how that starts to work on you and how you become jaded. And you, you just, it would, it, it was affecting how I related to my, my wife and my kids. And I was, you know, high, high degrees of stress because of it. And it wasn't until I got out of it and I started to decompress that I came to a full kind of appreciation for how it was affecting me and, and like the emotional toll it had taken. I, I, I'm not trying to, you know, make a play for sympathy here. It's just been the truth of my journey. 
in terms of uh, where I'm at. And I, I feel super blessed and I, I, uh, I'm proud of the work I did, but that chapter of my life's older and I'm, I'm excited about what I'm doing now. Yeah, man. I can't imagine that shit. Holy crap. Oh man. Yeah. I mean, I, I had, you know, like you, when you, when you walk away from, from your career, you know, I, I had 18 years in, in finance. It takes you so long to decompress and you you have no idea that whatever it is that you are doing career-wise that you you have it's not it's not the real you doing that job you know it's it, you've had to adapt to whatever situation you've been put in and you've got to play the political corporate lattice scheme games as well and you've got to you know be one person for a client one person for a different client another person for a, a colleague a different person for a boss. You, you're constantly switching masks all day long of um, who you are, and you know where <laughs> the the real you just gets lost in in somewhere, God knows where, and it doesn't come back out again until you can just disconnect from that. And what I love about this this bull run is there's going to be a lot of Bitcoiners. We're seeing it already. A lot of people are managing to escape their fiat life their fiat nine to five job and they're going to go and you know become daddy daycare or something for a, a year or two or mom's going to be able to spend more kids with um more time with the kids you know perhaps but only one parent need work rather than two and that that just gives me so much hope for um for those people that are going to be able to escape yeah i i think um you know this continual cycle in our in our society and our economy of taking on more debt. Um, I think it's pushed most families into a place where they kind of just assume that both parents need to work and just to be able to afford daycare and afford the things that society tells you you need to be able to afford. And uh, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. I, I think like I, I've now got new experience for a year, year and a half now, what it's like to have, you know, one half of the parents in the family focusing on, bringing in you know the means to operate financially and then the other um person kind of focus on being a homemaker which you know you kind of think is like a corny thing but like i i see being a homemaker as somebody who tries to take away as much of the friction as you can in the home environment and that mass that, that manifests itself in a variety of ways in terms of just like the you know cleaning up the kitchen and doing laundry and stuff like that that needs to be done but just like like trying to take away pain points. They, I, I've read that like in terms of pursuing happiness, people get more, uh, more bang for their buck or more added happiness in their life when they remove pain points as opposed to when they uh, add things to their life. They like a lot of people, you know, might wait in line like we saw in that tweet, like wait in line for a new purse thinking that may increase their happiness or moving into a bigger house may increase their happiness and such, but it's actually, um, I, I've found by removing pain points and improving relationships, uh, like that, that is, that is where the deepest kind of happiness <laughs> kind of comes from. Yeah, for sure. And funny story, uh, friends of ours were telling us the other day how they've, they don't even stack the dishwasher anymore because it was causing too many fights within the family. So mm -hmm. dishwasher is now completely off um yeah like not allowed to use it 
uh, they removed the pain point. It's um, it's funny you should bring that up just just days after them, you know, having that discussion with me. Yeah, but I, I love what you're saying about um, Bitcoiners being able to to um, step away from their routine and kind of find a different life. It's kind of like John Vallis talks about the the perfect life being, you know, hanging out in nature with your friends, talking about stuff and eating great food and just kind of slowing down. I think slowing down the pace of life, I think people can find a, a ton of value in that. And I'm, I'm kind of a poster boy for it because after I, after I sold everything in 2017, um, like it was, it was like torture to even think about Bitcoin because the price just kept going up and up. And like during that, eight or you know 10 months following that like i didn't even want to think about bitcoin <laughs> um but sure enough like it's like once you start seeing things a certain way and and thinking about things a certain way like i i guess in early 2018 i kind of found myself drifting back towards some of the podcasts i'd listened to previously and uh kind of the the mind share of of bitcoiners had migrated away from uh, Bitcoin talk and from Reddit and towards like Twitter as a platform. So I started getting more active in Twitter and I started getting more interested in Bitcoin. And this time it was from more of like an ideological, like I, I, I think in a, in a strange kind of way, this has some ability to improve the world. And so I started getting more involved for ideological reasons. And I started kind of buying the dip in 2018 and 2019. And, um, uh, that kind of led me, led me back to Bitcoin and and led me back to it with this project, um, which has been a great ride in terms of how it's just evolved. And I probably didn't do a great job towards the beginning of our conversation of it, explaining the value proposition of it. But um, the amount of people that have have reached out and offered to volunteer and help with certain aspects in the project, uh, it, it's just been a great a great experience overall. And you you mentioned as well mining. So is that what you started doing? Is that how you first came to the Bitcoin space? Was was that like day one, let's start mining coins? Yeah, that was like, I, I don't know what it is, but like so many people, when they're exposed to Bitcoin, they see like, you could just buy it and you're like, buy it? Why would I do that? I'm going to figure out how to do this mining thing. And it's <laughs> it's like a mental trap, I think, that a lot of people have to go through. But I remember on my MacBook, um, this would have been in early 2013. I remember thinking up a Bitcoin core node and flipping on mining in the, I think in the Bitcoin comp, you can, you know, flip it on or maybe there was some sort of supplemental program that you could download to actually use your CPU to mine Bitcoin. And CPU mining was, was you know, not viable at that point, but still like I remember my uh, computer's processor fan spinning up and getting louder as uh you know a minute or two after i'd flipped the uh the mining software on and i remember mining like a tiny amount of bitcoin so um at that time like on bitcoin talk asics were just becoming kind of a little bit more available and there were all of these different asic projects that were uh kind of emerging on bitcoin talk there was a company in the middle part of the United States called Butterfly Labs that was producing some of the earliest ASICs. And they had notoriously like, they were notoriously bad at communication and their projects were, their products were always, you had to pre-order it like several months before it even existed. And then like people are hounding this company because difficulties going up and they're losing their investment. And um, 
And there was, uh, let's see, there was one over in Europe called KNC Miner that was one of the early miners that I bought like an early Bitcoin miner through. And there was a guy named Yifu Gio. I think he was, he was in China, but he, he had one of the earliest ASIC mining chips and he was having these runs of chips produced in the, the fabs and he was selling them on Bitcoin Talk. And there were all these people that were coordinating these groups where they would pool money uh, pool Bitcoin to be able to buy these mining chips directly and then figuring out how to build uh, build circuit boards that would, it was kind of a crazy time. And there was a lot of scams out there. And at that time, you could still also mine Bitcoin relatively profitably using GPUs. So I remember running GPUs in my basement for a while. And then after the difficulty went up such that it made that not viable, I remember mining you know shit coins for a while and just converting the proceeds from that into bitcoin um yeah it was anyhow I, I'm, I'm rambling a bit but it was kind of crazy times as as mining was shifting from cpu to fpgas to gpus to um asics and now kind of like now it's like the chase for the the lowest cost electricity really it's crazy how quick that's moved huh if you right. think about like CPU mining to where we're at today, where you've got goodness knows how many thousands of uh, like ASICs, for example, plugged into a hydro dam or, you know, capping an oil well or you know, whatever crazy shit is going on. That happened so damn quick. Yeah, it was a, it's a funny story. I don't think I've shared before. Um, at the time when I, it was in 2013, kind of, one of the latest things with you know some of the alternative currencies that were being created one of the latest things was to create a, some kind of proof of work that couldn't be done with a gpu and that had to be some sort of cpu mind only coin and so there was a, a coin called prime coin that attempted through its proof of work to do some kind of useful mathematical work which was calculating these really large prime numbers and i remember where i worked we had on site a, uh, a training room with like 24 uh, computers in it. And so I remember setting up all these computers to mine prime coin um, when we weren't using the training room for other things. And we didn't use it a lot. So it for a month or two, it was just all these computers were mining prime coin. And this was also the era of no KYC exchanges. So you could go on to, there was uh, an exchange called BTCE that was based you know, somewhere in Eastern, you know, Europe or something like that. And you could without an identity trade. So I would mine these prime coins and trade them for Bitcoin. And I kind of held those Bitcoin in the, uh, under the name of the agency I was working for. And we just held on to them for, um, you know, six months or a year. And when we had that rally in late 2013, you know, I'm sitting on who knows what it was like, you know, several thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin. And I'd been transparent with my boss about what I was doing because part of what we did, he, he was really cool about letting us do R&D in areas that kind of interested us that had some kind of relevance to forensics. So this like cryptocurrency thing was just kind of like, you spend a, a little bit of time, you know, during your week, like doing R&D and just kind of playing around with different technologies to see where they were going. And so I mined Bitcoin and I was able to purchase uh I forget the, the service, but I, I bought an iMac with some of the Bitcoin that we'd mined. 
had had it delivered to the lab. And I remember the package showing up and my boss looking at it like, what on earth is that? <laughs> and, uh, you know, these days those Bitcoin would be worth, uh, you know, who knows how much I paid for that iMac, but it was fun to like get something that, you know, we could use for forensic work at the lab um, that we just kind of mined out of, you know, virtual currency. That's awesome. And what what about uh, Silk Road stuff? Were you still working in law enforcement uh, around that time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, not personally involved in the Silk Road investigation. I, I, I worked on several cases that were um, prosecuted federally. That was probably how most of my cases went because in America, the, uh, uh, the, the criminal penalty penalties for crimes against children are more severe at the federal level. And because the way um, federal law is set up with uh, the interstate commerce clause, like pretty much any child porn case where someone's downloading over the internet, like invokes the commerce clause and it's eligible for federal prosecution. So I, I worked with a lot of, uh, a lot of federal prosecutors, but that was in a different jurisdiction, the, the Silk Road thing. But it was, I remember reading the day that the, uh, the indictment was made public and you just kind of knew from reading it, like, man, this is going to have to be a movie someday. It was just like, just crazy. The amount of money that was involved and kind of the, the way that, that they caught up with uh, Ross at the library and some of the details of that. It, it's like, gosh, this is like stranger than fiction kind of stuff. And for those that, uh, you know, perhaps don't know the story, could, could you just outline uh, exactly what happened? Um, I, I should have done that myself before I asked the question. I always forget there are some people that might not have heard of the, the Silk Road case and what the website was and, and how that whole story kind of transpired. Right. So Silk Road was um, another little part of my backstory is I, I first heard of Bitcoins in, in context of the Silk Road, um, which was an online marketplace that was anonymous on the dark net where, you know, various, uh, you know, drugs as well as kind of some other services that are hard to purchase legally are offered on this, on this tour website. And the case where I was exposed to, it was actually drugs online too. It was a, um, a local teenager had gotten like a high end gaming computer for his Christmas or birthday or something like that. And instead of like gaming this with this machine, he was mining Bitcoin and then ordering drugs on the Silk Road that were delivered through the U.S. mail to his doorstep. And I, I believe it was marijuana and he would split the marijuana up into a, like kind of single serve portions and sell it at school for dollars. And he was actually making like a decent little bit of money doing that. Um, but anyhow, the, the Silk Road was uh, at a dark net market, I think is what they call like that and similar websites. And Ross Ulbricht, who is alleged to have been the person who, you know, started and operated the, uh, the Silk Road was basically running it off of a laptop. And I think he traveled, I'm not, you know, super familiar with all the details of the investigation, but I think he had traveled to different parts of the country and different parts of the world and was kind of running it from a laptop. And he would commonly use like internet at libraries and such as another kind of uh, additional personal buffer um, between you know himself and his identity operating the market. And in the indictment, they talk about how he was in a public library with his laptop open, doing the administrative uh, work of running the Silk Road. And I don't know if he voluntarily stepped away from his laptop or maybe 
an undercover agent got his attention and tried to kind of like lure him away from his laptop, whatever it was, he stepped away from the laptop while it was open and unencrypted because with a lot of systems that are, you know, where people have pretty good OPSEC, if that computer goes to sleep or the screensaver kicks on or the user logs out or the power gets cut, um, the, the hard drive will go into a state where it's encrypted and virtually impossible to get any data or, you know, information off it. So somehow they got him away from the keyboard um, uh, where the computer was still in an unlocked state and they were able to uh, keep the computer from locking up. And I, you know, there's various ways of getting an on-scene image or something like that. But yeah, that was, that was kind of like the, almost something out of like a spy thriller that they lure him away from the keyboard and then like prevent him from going back to close the lid or something like that. And they're able to, to get his computer in an unencrypted state to gather evidence from it. Um, I didn't follow the trial and I'm not super familiar with, you know, the, the evidence that was presented, but like I said, it's like stranger than fiction kind of stuff. Yeah. It's crazy, man. So that that's, yeah, another very interesting part and well, it's folklore, isn't it? In, in the Bitcoin space of, of at this point. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, and uh, here he is uh, still in prison and serving X amount of life sentences. I don't know how many, um, which just seems ridiculous. Um, Feels a bit excessive, <laughs> to say the least. But uh, yeah, all right. Well, I mean, all kinds of like, this all kind of links together now. The, the, the fact that you started with mining and understood that that's that's why you're building this project right that that's you know the hardware thing um you know for, for me coming from finance i just come purely for number go up i understood that side of it like the hardware and the tech and the code and all of that it just right a lot of it flies over well yeah 98 percent of it flies over my head and i'm scrambling every day to try and keep up with uh, or or learn from the past and you know try and figure out exactly what is what in this strange old world but I can now see exactly why you were led to, you know, coming back to Bitcoin, obviously, everybody wants to come back once they've seen, you know, the, the technology for what it is and, you know, this this opportunity to, to store your value. Um, and there's there's a little bit of like information security that's involved in forensic. It's not like we're, you know, full-time inf information security guys that are def defending networks or investigating you know network intrusions or anything like that but there's there's a pretty high degree of opsec in what we do like in the lab environment i worked in like we operate a completely offline computer network that doesn't connect to the internet because that's where we're storing evidence and you know a lot of our computers are networked um uh, to be able to move evidence around and such but i i also kind of joked when i was in forensics that um it, it it's kind of like adversarial computing because everything you do, you do with a high degree of thoughtfulness and caution. Um, sometimes not so much because you're worried that, you know, this data is going to become, you know, uh, compromised and leaked in any way. It's just like, uh, I, I call it adversarial computing in such that, like, every decision you make as a forensic examiner kind of operates under the presumption that the investigation you're working on is going to get called into uh, court for a trial and that you're going to have to explain in front of a jury 
a judge, a prosecutor, and a defense attorney exactly why you obtained data a certain way that you did and why that the way you obtain the data is defensible in terms of uh, the decisions you made. And then when, when we do recover evidence from computers, you know, you have to be prepared to explain everything from, you know, how hexadecimal numbering works to how Windows artifacts work to how cellular networks work. Uh, the, the spectrum of things that a sharp defense examiner can ask you about on the stand is kind of staggering and a bit intimidating. So um, I, I kind of came from this background of like, like I said, adversarial computing, where you just think about like the next logical step of, of decisions you make. And so to kind of project that onto private keys and how I think about private keys, like those are the, the coup de gras, that's the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And you want to prevent any sort of access to those keys. So like seed signer, um, it helps you do two things. It helps you generate private keys and it helps you sign for transactions um, with your private keys. And in terms of generating private keys, I think that's like a kind of a, vul a vulnerable part of the whole experience of being a Bitcoiner that a lot of people don't think about. Because when you, you know, the first stage of Bitcoin is maybe buying some sort of derivative or buying some kind of proxy for a Bitcoin on like Robinhood or GBTC or something like that. And then there's owning actual Bitcoin. And then there's owning actual Bitcoin and taking it off of the exchange so that you're custodying it. And to custody the Bitcoin, you need you need a private key, one or more private keys. And when you order something in the mail, like a Trezor or a Ledger, I don't want to pick on them because a lot of different hardware devices use this security model. When you turn it on for the first time after you've you know made sure that that the packaging is non-tamper evident and then it looks like you know a secure device it will run a little bit of code that creates some entropy based on, you know, it could be based on the time or based on some inputs you put into the device or something like that. But at that magical moment, that is the private key that's going to be, um, that's going to be protecting your Bitcoin. And if the process uh, by which that entropy is generated and the private keys created is somehow compromised like that that's the foundation of your whole custody setup and uh hardware wallets you know in terms of a secure element were a huge leap forward and i don't want to disparage hardware wallets or any of the the massive increases in security uh that they facilitated but the whole journey of storing bitcoin is a process and so um I love what the guys at Spectre are doing. And one of the design decisions that Spectre, um, the guys at Spectre, Stepan and Moritz made intentionally, and they're great guys. They've been, as an aside, they've helped me a lot with, with Seed Signer. Um, one of their design decisions was if you're going to use our software to create a wallet, you're going to have to have your own node. So it's like a bring your own node kind of software. And because of my background in forensics and information security and offline networks and such, um, Seed Signer will always probably be itself a bring your own entropy kind of uh, storage solution because we will probably never add a feature where, you know, through the hardware inside the Raspberry Pi, there are some schemes where you can generate a little bit of ent entropy um, independent of any user input and create a private key. But like, 
I don't want that responsibility. I think it's super important for Bitcoiners to go through the process of generating some entropy and meat space so that they can be assured that their private keys are theirs and theirs alone. Um, and so that that's a bit of, I, I went off on a digression there, but I, I kind of just wanted to highlight that Seed Signer is a bring your own entropy um, tool. And I think there's a ton of value in that. And there's, there's actually a, a website called Seed Picker that they guide you through that process through it's, it's part of uh, Michael's 10x Bitcoin security guide, but they'll guide you through, you know, through a printout with some cutout lottery tickets and um, some dice. You can kind of go through a process where you generate your own entropy. Do you just want to explain that in case people are wondering what the word entropy means? Yeah, that's 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 a great point. Um, entropy is the way I would describe it is just kind of think of it as randomness in the universe. So you want when you're creating a private private key. You don't want any sort of predictable or recreatable process that somebody else might be able to recreate and thus like recreate your private key. So you want to go through a process that is unique to you and you alone. Um, using the example of seed picker, through that high level overview of that process is you print out a few pages of seed words. I think that there's some sort of uh, kind of like raffle tickets. I don't remember if they have seed words on them or not, or if they're just numbers. I think they're numbers, sorry. Um, you print out these kind of like raffle tickets. And then one at a time, you pick out the raffle ticket. And for a little bit more randomness, you have a single die that you roll the die. And through combining the value on the raffle ticket and the value of the dice, there's a lookup table with the entire list of uh, BIP39 approved seed words. And based on the number that's on the raffle ticket and what you rolled with the die, that helps you locate a seed word in this you know, huge table. And then um, you uh, write those down, You know, the first 23, and then you need to use some sort of tool to be able to calculate the 24th word. And that's where, where um, a website like Seed Picker or even better, something like Seed Center comes in such that the last word operates uh, cryptographically, they, the word they use for it is it's a checksum. So it's mathematically determined that the first 23 words um, dictate that the last word, the 24th word, can only be one of a certain small number of words. And if you were to enter like into a wallet the first 23 words and the last word wasn't an approved word for the first 23, it would fail this checksum. And that's kind of like a user protection that would tell you like, hey, something's not right here. You must have entered one of the words wrong. It's it's kind of a way to protect users from their own mistakes. Um, but back to entropy, entropy is like, you want some little bit of randomness that is unique to you and only you in this universe. And so, um, you know, a, a great way to do that is to cut out these little raffle tickets and nobody's going to be able to recreate the exact shapes you cut out and how do you move your hands as you're picking out the tickets or if you're shaking up, you know, the, the little container you put the tickets in in between or how you're rolling the dice or, you know, imperfections that are specific to your dice or there's just so many random little things going on when you generate your own seed phrase that it, it's you can feel secure knowing that nobody could recreate that process. Well done. That's a brilliant, uh, brilliant way to explain it. Now. I want to ask, 
what can we do as civilians with um like like you know michael flexman's done the privacy guide to you know 10x your your privacy could you give us a few tips to 10x or at least 5x the, the privacy on our mobile phones are, are there a few things that basic things that perhaps we could do to to help keep ourselves a little bit more private uh the the biggest bang for your buck i would say is the pin phrase that you pick for your mobile phone hmm. um the uh, a lot of people when they select a pin phrase um they'll be kind of clever and use maybe like a geometric pattern or numbers that represent their date of birth or the last numbers of their social security number or some sort of number that's familiar to them or just a common number like you know the, the most obvious one is like one two three four five six but what a lot of the forensic solutions and this is you know public public domain knowledge i'm not spilling any beans here or telling anything secret but what a lot of these uh forensic solutions that endeavor to help law enforcement or you know would-be attackers get into cell phones is the cell phone slows down the number of attempts that can be made into the device drastically like initially you know when cell phones first came out and they thought oh we'll put a pin phrase on this um, there were some implementations where you could use a gpu to guess the uh the pin phrase and because there were only numbers involved or because there's only nine positions, if you're drawing like a pattern on the screen, um, there are only a finite number of, you know, possible combinations because you're only dealing with, you know, six digits of zero through nine or whatever. Um, so early on, it was pretty easy with a GPU to crack people's pin phrases. Now uh, it's such that, you know, number one, it's difficult to get the pin phrase off the phone to begin with. So really the only way to try to guess the pin phrase is to do it through the user interface. And they're actually like little robots. I, I've seen them at trade shows that mimic a finger. And it's like a little robot that will um, guess, you know, in either an iPhone or an Android phone's uh, pin code or pass gesture. And then it'll wait a de designated amount of time that you've programmed into it. And then it'll like press the on button and attempt to do it again. Like it's literally a stylus robot that is trying different uh, pin phrases. What I'm getting at is some of these tools uh, will figure out the most common guesses, probably from open source sources on the internet of like, you know, other phones that have been cracked. Because a lot of people use, you know, what, one, two, three, four, five, six as a pin, or a lot of people draw, you know, an L or, around you know a box around the corner of you know the the letters that are visible there are these kind of predictable pin codes that people tend to use and the smart devices will try unless they have some sort of like the user told me this was the pin code or we think it's somebody saw him enter it or we think it's based on his birthday or something like that the very next kind of thing that a lot of these tools would do is guess commonly used pin codes. So get back to your original question. Um, don't use commonly used pin codes, like roll some, like find a 10 sided die or something, or just, you know, cut out zero through nine and put the numbers in a hat and pick six numbers that are random. Cause that'll, that's, 
that will avoid you doing something that is predictable by other people. It's, it's in a microcosm, it's the exact same process of generating private keys. You want something to protect your phone that is, you know, random, something that you came up with that somebody else wouldn't be likely to guess. Are we, how do you feel? I mean, are we in the Bitcoin space? Are we too paranoid about privacy in general? Or do you think there's that that's a health, there's a healthy amount of paranoia? What, what What's the kind of way you look at it? I think it's, uh, I do think we, we tend to go paranoid. I'm, I'm guilty of that probably as much or more than most people. So I, I probably see things that way. Um, but I think Bitcoiners tend to be like a little more aware of privacy and safeguarding their own privacy. And it part springs from the whole like private, a private key is information. And the secrecy of that information is what secures, you know, the, the assets you possess, what secures for a lot of people potentially like a good part of their personal wealth. So we're tuned into that, I think, because it serves our interests. Um, but that, you know, that once people start thinking about the security of their private keys, they start thinking about the security of, you know, the, the data that's with service providers or, you know, any of these other kind of ways that our, our digital fingerprints can be left, you know, on some of the, the networks out there. Yeah, I, I think we're a little paranoid, but... I think it's justified just by virtue of how how Bitcoin works. Absolutely, man. I, I, it's a rabbit hole I've been pulled into, and it just scares the living daylights out of me every time I peek down there. Uh, you you, you <laughs> right. mentioned you'd been on Max's show uh, bit by bit, and he he loves it. Like this is his thing, you know. He he's he he's. I've learned a great deal from him. We uh, we chat every now and then. I actually do need to catch up with him. And he's done a lot of great shows with Bitcoin Q&A and another brilliant Bitcoiner been on this show as well. Um, and they blow my Q &A, mind. Q&A, um, actually kind of what, I, I'm new to software developing. Um, the, the whole concept of Seed Signer came from Michael Flaxman with him saying like, wouldn't it be cool if you had this little offline computer that you could use to uh, create the last word of a seed phrase? And like, I took that and I had a very small amount of programming in my background, but I actually went to Udemy and looked up a Python course and watched, you know, d several hours of Python. I, I was already familiar with like the basic stuff, like, you know, logic, different logical operators and, and uh, object oriented programming and such. But anyhow, like I, I um, came at Seed Signer and not from open source, not from as a programmer, but it was just like something that I wanted to exist. So after I'd tackled the 24th word thing, I was like, well, what if, you know, with some inexpensive components, we could not just have this be something that helps people create, create seed phrases. What if it's something that we could actually use to securely sign transactions the same kind of way that the Spectre DIY does. So anyhow, I didn't come from the software world and Q and A as an aside, uh, finally pushed me into the practice of, using GPG signatures to validate releases of our code. And it's something that I, I wouldn't have thought to do, but given, you know, what, what we're doing, we're helping people generate and safeguard private keys. Like it makes a lot of sense that you want to through whatever means maximize the amount of trust um, for people who aren't building the code from source, which not everybody's going to do that. And that's 
perfectly understandable. But anyhow, yeah, Q and A is he's he is on the ball about that kind of stuff, and he nudged me towards signing releases, which was a, a great uh, great idea for our project. Two fellow brick winners. Yeah, right on. <laughs> All right, mate. We, we've been speaking for. I just glanced at the time. Yeah, we've 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 done this justice. Uh, but I've not even asked you the, the, the last question and goodness knows where that might take us. So if you had, well, if you had one orange pill left to give to someone, who would you give it to and why? Um, the first person that comes to mind is Jordan Peterson. And he recently has kind of signaled that like, maybe he's got some openness to Bitcoin, but I, I just respect him so much as a thinker and a lot of people might say like a politician or, you know, somebody who runs a central bank or a media figure or something. But I I honestly believe that good ideas um, can change the world and improve people's lives. I I just think he's a, I have a ton of respect for him and I I think he's a very deep thinker. So he would be my pick for uh, if I could orange pill somebody to the like Michael Saylor degree of orange pilling people, <laughs> that would be uh, Jordan Peterson. It's close, right? It's it's gonna happen. I think he's he's lining up a few interviews. At, Is he? Yeah, um, he's got Safe coming on his show. Oh, I, I will look forward to that. I obviously read the Bitcoin Standard and stuff. Big big fan of Safe Jeans. So yeah, and hopefully uh, he will be hooking up with uh, because John Vallis. Uh, Robert Breedlove, Richard James, and Gigi did that deep dive on uh, his his book. Like the book club thing, yeah. Yeah, like a three-hour marathon of, of listening to like some of the deepest minds in the space. Just, I mean, I, I was listening I'd be, to I'd that. be lying if I said I got all the way through that episode, <laughs> but I, I did listen to the first like hour and a half, two hours, and, and thoroughly enjoyed it and then got distracted. But yeah, yeah, they're like amazing ideas and things that can really like it sounds a bit dramatic but like ideas that can move civilization forward yeah for sure it's uh, it's a great episode if nobody's if nobody's uh, listened to it go and check it out it's on john vallis's show uh, bitcoin rapid fire all for right sure. seed signer have we covered everything today uh, about your project is there anything we missed out or anything that you want to you know drive home again before we sign off if I could just point people towards, they can uh, connect with the project and kind of learn more about it. Like that, that, that would be great. If uh, pe- if you just Google or DuckDuckGo or whatever your search engine is, if you Google Seed Signer and GitHub, uh, that should take you to the GitHub repo, which is of course where all of our source code lives. But there's a readme there that kind of explains the basics of the project and gets into a little detail if you think you'd like to build one. Um, the other thing, is my Twitter profile is also seed signer, just the two words put together, seed signer, all one word. Um, and if you uh, look at my profile on Twitter, there's some links to some videos that kind of show the the project in action and the, the device in action. There's also a link to our uh, Telegram group chat where we've got uh, about 150 or close to 200 people who are interested in building one or who have built one or people who are, more familiar with kind of the, the technical details who, if, if this is a project that you're interested in, but it's something you're a little intimidated by some of the details uh, that goes into building one, like that 
group chat is a great place if you have questions about specifics or, or the overview of the process. Um, I'd love to be able to say that there is a seedsigner.com, but we're not quite there yet. I actually own the domain name, um, but we're in the process of building a website that will be the one-stop shop for all things SeedSigner that will hopefully uh, be a great way for people to get started with it. Um, I just think that like I, what we're trying to get to is that John Vallis put it so well that like, so you've built your own node. It's become this thing in Bitcoin that people build their own nodes. And I'd love for it to be inevitable that the next step after you build your own node is you build some kind of signing device like the uh, Spectre DIY or a seed signer that helps you truly trustlessly generate your own private keys and helps you get you know, into this more secure air gap signing model and maybe a gateway into multi-sig too. So to, to buy one of these things, you go to the website and I'm looking at it now, it, you, you buy the kit and then you, you knock it all up together, much like we, we did if uh, we built our nodes this way. Not yet. Um, you, at this point, there's no kit offered and that's that's a little bit, we didn't get into this, but that's a little bit kind of uh, the, the advantage of this security model is that there's no kind of supply chain attack because you're just ordering components, the Raspberry Pi, a camera, and a little screen with the thumb controls that are in no way Bitcoin specific. So none of the retailers that you order these things from would have any reason to think that they're in any way connected to Bitcoin. So you can get these components that you can have a little bit higher degree of uh, uh, security that there was no sort of funny business in the supply chain. And then um, it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a hardware project. Uh, we, we didn't talk about that, but there's videos and, and a walkthrough um, in the, the GitHub. But anyhow, you, you, with these components, you're able to build a device. And um, uh, we do sell enclo enclosures to benefit kind of the further development of the uh, project. I've come up with one that looks like an orange pill that everybody can see in the pictures. Um, but don't have a finished device uh, available for sale or a kit as of this point, kind of on the fence about doing that. We may do it at some point in the future, but right now it's like, it's a little bit of a rabbit hole journey of finding where you can buy this stuff and putting it together yourself. Looks cool, man. And um, are you, is there any way anyone uh, could help help you out with anything? Is there like, uh, I'm, I'm thinking some cool logos or stickers or anything like that. What, what are you open to if people are reaching out looking to help you? Uh, the, I have somebody kind of working on the website right now. Um, it, the community is actually in great. We've, a guy has helped me come up with a logo. You can find that on my Twitter profile. Um, the, the pictures that I've been showing on the, on the uh, screen during our conversation were actually created by, I want to give him credit, Lenati Coin, who's a Spanish-speaking podcaster. And he's apparently a pretty amazing photographer too because he – he uh, used a, a case that I sent him and assembled it and took these beautiful pictures. Um, there's a, a guy named Richard in Europe who is really into 3D printing and is helping me uh, get enclosures for the device uh, manufactured and distributed over there for people that are interested. But please just like hit me with a DM or I, in Telegram, I'm at SeedSigner too. It's real simple that way. Like my, my DMs are open um i i 
love talking to people. So yeah, <laughs> if, if anybody has some special skills they think that can help the project, I'm totally open to it. Love it, man. Well, thank you for taking the time and coming on the show. Thanks for reaching out. It's been a really cool one and uh, I've learned a ton. Really uh, hope um, everything goes well with this project and yeah, all the best, man. Thanks for, thanks for, thanks for your work. Yeah, really appreciate uh, the ability to talk to you today and uh, yeah, thank you as well. Take care, brother. You too. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in and joining Seed Signer and I as we took a little trip through several different rabbit holes there and got to know a little bit more about himself, his past, which sounds pretty, man, you know, unbelievable. Uh, thanks for everything that um, you did in your work in, in, uh, in previous life and, and, and are doing now and for building a, a Bitcoin project, which I think is going to go a long way to uh, helping more and more people become comfortable with, with taking more control over their coins. And like I said at the start of the show, that's really important. Guys, come on. Let's, uh, let's stop messing around now. All of the, um, the people that um, who did get shaken out of some positions on, um, on trading platforms, I feel for you. You have my empathy. Um, I, I hope you can recover and um, get back on the horse and start stacking. And once you do stack, Get it straight onto a hardware wallet. It's uh, it's really important for those people that are new and you don't really understand what a hard st- hardware wallet is. Get down the rabbit hole as quick as you can. There's plenty of podcasts out there uh, from people such as Bitcoin Q and A, Stefan Levera, Peter McCormack, my own John Vallis. Go find them. Look for wallet episodes, and you'll get up to speed pretty quickly. It's uh, a very good time to shill then Bitbox 02, which is a Bitcoin only wallet with lots of great features. Lots of safety features. I've got an episode coming out with the, uh, the CEO, Douglas, very, very soon, where you'll learn more. And please check out the other sponsors. That's Swan Bitcoin, coinfloor.co.uk, and relay.ch, all forward slash bitten. Please stack safe, guys. Take care.